Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering gourmet pizzas, hot submarine sandwiches, and salads with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And our topic today uh, is the recent uh, climate talks in Copenhagen and what they mean for people of the United States, people of Indiana, and I guess people from all over the world. We have uh, three guests with us in the studio today. Uh, we have law and public and environmental affairs professors Kenneth Richards and or Ken Richards, sorry, and Rob Fishman, as well as DePaul student Andrew Maddox, who attended the talks in Copenhagen. You can join the program by calling eight five five zero eight one one or eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, and you can join the discussion at our website wfiu.org slash noon edition. Welcome to all of you, Ken. I said I was going to call you Ken, and then I called you Kenneth right away, right out <laughs> no of the box. Problem. So, no problem. No problem. All right. Well, let's talk. I want to turn to Andrew first because you were you were at the the summit, the talks. Um, just give us sort of an overview of what went on and and what you were able to see and glean from them. Sure. Well, the talks were located at the Bella Center, which was this massive conference center about ten minutes outside the city of Copenhagen, and we got there on the Sunday before the talks started. And Monday morning, rode the subway in, and you see this probably 100-foot-tall windmill behind a series of conference center buildings, and there was the Copenhagen COP15 logo everywhere. COP15 stands for Conference of the Parties Number 15, and you are there with suited delegates from all kinds of countries. I heard languages on the train I didn't even know existed, and mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden you're just in this sphere of international policy, and it was a great feeling to be there, if nothing else. And mm-hmm. You walk in, and there's a main room with a lot of Displays set up from NGOs and governmental groups and scientific organizations plugging their latest innovations and their latest policy developments. And then there, through a hallway was a, a huge bank of computers and a series of conference rooms. Um, and that was where everything was centered. So how was it that you, uh, a junior at DePaul, right, a right. junior, decided to go? I decided to go following the lead of two of my classmates that went to a preliminary conference over the summer in Bonn, Germany. <laughs> And I'd been inter- interested in climate policy since my sophomore year. We'd started at the <clears throat> Indiana state level and um, spent a semester working on that. And we got interested in environmental policy issues through that avenue. And it seemed like the opportunity of a lifetime, at least in, in terms of climate change issues. I mean, this was plugged for a long time to be the defining conference where they finally came up with an agreement that everybody in the world could agree on that would curb carbon emissions and, and reduce global average temperatures. So I, I saw it as a chance to participate on the front lines and that it was really hard to turn down. All right. Well, I want to turn to uh, Rob next and say, well, so was this a defining conference? Well, in some ways it was. I, I know that a lot of my friends in the environmental movement uh, were bitterly disappointed uh, because the conference did not result in a formal agreement. But if one looks at the larger sweep of environmental law, either domestic or international, what one sees is incrementalism. And uh, the I think everyone would agree that the most important agreement to come out of Copenhagen was the accord uh, led by a group of – a handful of high carbon emitting nations. And uh, though a incomplete document, it is a foundation for moving forward. I don't uh, know of anybody who uh, would say that uh, the world is in a worse position in terms of responding to climate change now than it was before Copenhagen, though many are disappointed that we're not uh, farther along. Um, and then finally, I just note that um, one of the extraordinary outcomes uh, 
or the extraordinary th- one of the extraordinary things that happened was the active involvement of the United States president. Um, that's nothing like that has ever happened before. The first President Bush did go to the United Nations meeting uh, that uh, in 1992, the the Rio Earth Summit that created the U- United Nations Convention on Climate Change. But he was not actively involved in negotiating anything. When Kyoto came along, President Clinton sent Vice President Gore. And uh, so the role that President Obama played is, is really quite unprecedented in shaping this accord, which is a kind of blueprint for negotiations to come. What kind of message do you think that sent the other nations in attendance? Uh, well, uh, the, uh, I can't speak for the message it actually sent, but certainly the intention was that the United States uh, plans to, certainly the Obama administration wants to uh, play a much more active leadership role rather than a reluctant role of a follower of the uh, certainly climate mitigation train. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ken, sort of the same question to you. Um, was it a defining moment? What were the – what's the impact of it? Well, the, the – um, uh, the extent to which it was a defining moment depends on what you were looking for to get out of it. Uh, a lot of people had what were probably unrealistic expectations going in. Uh, that is that they were hoping for binding limitations on – or binding limits on uh, a broad range of countries. But with 197 countries represented, uh, it's really hard to get unanimity and that's what would have been required for a, a final set of binding lim, uh, binding um, caps on on all of the countries, so at some level, the idea of emerging uh, from this with an agreement, what, what's essentially an agreement to agree, an agreement that we're going to each each country set goals, we're going to stick to them, we're going to uh, make our, uh, our our performance transparent to other countries, so they can tell whether we're we're meeting our agreements. That's actually a major step forward and it's probably uh, as Rob uh, observed, it's, it's an incremental move in the right direction if what you're looking for is a reduction in global emissions. Mm-hmm. OK. Our phone number is 855-0811-877-285-9348. You can also email us a uh, comment, uh, a question at, at our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. I want to follow up on Mary Catherine's question uh, to you, Andrew, since you – were there, what was your sense of what the president's uh, presence meant? At least initially, it carried a lot of expectation coming in, especially on the Friday that he was slated to show up. We were following the Twitter feed, my three classmates and I sitting in our host home. We, we couldn't get anywhere near the Bella Center on the night Obama was there, unfortunately. But we were seeing updates pop up sort of every 10 seconds from reporters that were frantically trying to find press conferences and find out where the president was actually going to be. And, you know, they'd talk about press stampedes every time they got a rumor. They'd run over to the certain room. And so everybody thought he was going to come in and, and really have the defining piece of policy that was going to tip the scales and that the U.S. was finally going to either set some sort of binding carbon target or, or increase its funding or something along those lines that a lot of countries could unite around. Um, it turned out that Secretary Clinton came in and, and promised the – I believe it was $100 billion number earlier in, on Thursday and that turned out to be the only real substantive measure that the U.S. was going to put forward at the end of the conference and you know, Obama became a facilitator between the developed countries which was important from the developed countries' perspective but from the global south and from the developing countries' perspective, it, it was – I think a pretty major disappointment. Mm-hmm. Well, our producer Ariana sent me a, a link to some of the, the blog, your blog, mm-hmm. and some other things that um, that you were doing over there. And, and I wanted to sort of get this out right away because there there were a couple of people that were corresponding with you on the blog that were basically the naysayers, like sure. like you know this is all you know hokum. It's global warming isn't real. Um, and I'd like to, for all three of you to sort of talk about that. Issue. I mean, there's still there seems to be a fairly strong preponderance of the evidence, if I can use that legal term, maybe even more than that, uh, on the side of the the scientists. Who certainly there's lots of evidence that this is very real, but still there are people out there that will engage somebody like Andrew in conversation on a blog, saying, you know, what's what is all this? So, um, Rob, can you respond to that? Well. Uh 
When I think of preponderance of the evidence, well, that's I, like a civil. Uh, I think of uh, evidence that persuades you at least fifty-one percent. Uh, so this is beyond a reasonable doubt, right? I'd say it has to be more beyond a, a reasonable doubt. And though I'm not uh, conversant in the the modeling of of climate and and the, the relationships between emission of greenhouse gases and and the changes that are being observed in global temperature, uh, the um, you know, there has been a process of decades-long study by a consortia, international consortia of scientists through the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And the series of reports that that entity has issued over the course of the past 15 years or so has reflected a, uh, an, an ever-decreasing amount of uncertainty or an, an ever-more-precise uh, um, modeling that appears to match what we're observing on the planet, uh, concluding that, um, yes, uh, there is a warming trend. Yes, it appears to be beyond what we've seen in the past in terms of its pace. And there is very strong evidence that is related to the emission of the so-called greenhouse gases, the most important one of which is carbon dioxide, which with methane uh, fairly close behind. The, um, you know, if if there are people in town who are interested in some of the questions surrounding the, uh, the, the science that shows uh, climate change and its relationship to human activities, the, the law school environmental law program next week in uh, conjunction with a bevy of other units on campus is hosting a talk by Brian Soden who uh, served as a lead author on the most recent one of those intergovernmental panel on climate change reports, the one that came out in 2007. He's a professor at the University of Miami School of Marine and Atmospheric Scientists and, and he'll be giving a talk called The Reality of Global Warming, Cold Facts on a Hot Topic <laughs> this coming Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock at, at the law school. And the, uh, the public is welcome to come. In fact, we picked that time to make it easy for the public to attend. Okay. Ken, uh, reaction? Well, the, the, thing, the thing that we need to understand or we need to bear in mind is that this is a phenomenally complex topic. Um, understanding climate, uh, the, the drivers of climate and, and changes in the climate – uh, it you know in in policy sometimes we have an expression you know it's not exactly rocket science well this is this is really rocket science if you if you uh, look at the kinds of models that are required to to pick up um, uh, uh, to, to, to be able to forecast changes in climate they're incredibly complex there's lots of factors Rob used the expression of preponderance of the evidence mm -hmm. we're not looking here for absolute certainty we'll never have absolute certainty about. Uh, what kinds of changes are connected to what behavior. But what we do know is that there's um, a, a, a connection between our actions and changes in the environment. We have a pretty good idea uh, what, the, uh, what the magnitudes are. Mm -hmm. And uh, based on that, we, we're, we're in a position where we can be taking um, uh, anticipatory action. Okay. All right. We're going to go to the phone. Our first caller is Wayne. Wayne, go ahead. Hi. You talk about reasonable doubt about global warming. It seems to me the reasonable doubt is overwhelming. We, we have the evidence of fraudulent climate research in, in East Anglia, and not only fraudulent climate research, but repressed, repressed research often when the, when the uh, research concluded, made, draw a conclusion against global warming. We have increased ice in Antarctica, which has not been reported on the news media, but it's there. We, we had a very cool, we have an, even had a cold summer. We, we have just come through one of the coldest periods in January, in my memory, and all of the oranges frozen, you know, the oranges froze in Florida. Um, uh, isn't that more than just a reasonable doubt? Okay, we're going we're gonna to go to our panel now, Wayne. Thanks a lot for the call. All right. Well, I was. I was. The, uh, this is Rob Fishman. I was the person who suggested that the evidence is, uh, passes the reasonable uh, doubt standard, uh, which goes far beyond the preponderance of the evidence standard. Um, and I'm, I'm not prepared to debate the facts, other than to observe that actually last year was one of the very hottest 
years recorded on record. And uh, the fact of the matter is we're observing uh, less and less ice at the poles and it, it seems as though that is one of the more certain of the effects that we can anticipate to continue into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly invite uh, callers who are more interested in these atmospheric models and the facts of observed changes on Earth to, uh, to come to the talk by Brian Soden next week. Okay. Andrew? The climate gate issue was certainly an interesting one. That's, that's what the scandal is being called now where uh, hackers broke into the University of East Anglia's databases and released tens of thousands of emails. And I saw on a television in the Bella Center a uh, discussion with Stephen Schneider, who's a, a scientist at Stanford and has, has been involved in climate issues for decades and has embraced the greater degree of uncertainty in previous years and, and moved towards a, a ever decreasing degree of uncertainty, as you talked about earlier. And he addressed some of the specific claims in those um, emails of repressed research and and ambiguously worded models and even deceptively worded models. And there are a few specific examples that I've heard refuted by what I consider mainstream peer-reviewed scientific outlets. And just from my experience on the ground in Copenhagen, it's, it's hard to ignore hundred world leaders and, and leading scientists that stake their careers on, on being accurate and as truthful as possible, saying climate change is a reality that we need to deal with now. It's, it's pretty difficult for me to ignore that. And I think it's a fair criticism to say that we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we know generally what's going to happen. And that's no reason to me to, to stop paying attention to this issue or to say we don't need to do anything to mitigate carbon emissions to me that the degree of certainty is there and it's an important thing to do even if climate change wasn't happening in a warming direction. May I add something to to the issue of our not knowing what's going to happen? Uh, Because there are some real challenges with respect to uncertainty but I would say those challenges become – more significant when we shift our view from a global one to a local one. Uh, Yesterday, I was listening to WFIU and I heard the advertisement for this program and the advertisement said something uh, to the effect that we'll be talking about Copenhagen, which I thought, okay, great, I'm prepared to talk about that, and um, what it means for Indiana. You know, when when we shift the discussion for what uh, climate change means for the world and begin to look at what it means uh, for the region or for the state, we're moving from a realm of, of relative certainty to a realm of far greater uncertainty. And I think that's important to keep in mind that there are issues of scale, uh, particularly when it comes to discussing how uh, we're going to adapt to a a hotter world, a world with greater variation in drought and flood, a world with more acidic oceans, a world with uh, uh, less of an ice cap uh, or perhaps no ice cap in the summertime. Um, There are are big differences between what we can say about that um, as a global phenomenon and what we can say about what it means for us in Indiana. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm always interested in this – this discussion because people have a tendency to look at it from their own perspective, which is so short. When you're talking about whether the climate is changing, I mean who among us can say based on our own experience from when we were younger to now that we we know anything about whether the climate is actually changing. Such I mean, a snapshot. About, yeah, yeah. As you've talked about the, you know, the models that people look at are over – well, and the flip side of that is people asking, well, what does it matter if I turn out the yeah. lights or I don't drive today? You know, how could that possibly make a difference mm-hmm. with respect to this problem, you know, regarding gigatons of carbon that we're emitting into the atmosphere? There is uh, an important disconnect there between mm-hmm. our personal experience and the problem we're facing. That's partly what makes this such a difficult and interesting issue when it comes to exploring uh, what happened in Copenhagen. Can you consider it a success given the difficulty of this collective action problem? And just one other thing in terms of the difficulty of understanding this from a personal level, there's an important distinction between climate and weather. And Weather's the day-to-day reality that we go through, what temperature it is and what's coming out of the sky. But climate is more of an average. It's how the mm-hmm. trends follow out. And so it has been you know, an exceptionally cold period in January and the oranges are freezing in Florida. 
But that doesn't mean that the climate generally is cooling. It doesn't mean the global average temperatures are getting lower and lower. It just means that certain areas are getting colder, but other areas are getting warm as well. And it just means that more areas are getting warm in, in places that I've never been in and can't you know, conceive right. of immediately. But I, I believe the scientists that are modeling this on a broader scale saying – Yes, generally over the decades, things are still warming. And that's a trend. And I, I think this is a good example of why it's important to have good data. Mm. Uh, our, our personal observations tend to be skewed by recency. We pay attention to what's just happened. Uh, in fact, uh, if, if we look at trends over decades rather than over months, we, we realize that there does seem to be a uh, generic change on a very large scale mm-hmm. that we can't observe among, uh, amidst the noise that we are exposed to at the local level. Mm-hmm. And it, it also becomes a, a lifestyle thing too I found in terms of who believes climate's changing and who says, nope, not happening. We're all fine. We need to keep spewing as much carbon as we can. <laughs> to me, I would like to be told you can only have one car. You have to turn your lights off half the time to save energy. That's a challenge I'd embrace and something – you know, just personally growing up in a liberal family on the East Coast, I suppose, it, it's it's just a personal belief for me. And I would like to see, you know, people in, in developing countries have a shot at a better livelihood without continuing to pollute the world and, and have all these issues. But, you know, if you really believe in capitalist growth, if you believe in bigger cars and, and more money, that's f- fair enough. You know, it, it's not where I'm coming from, but it also – that clashes very directly with – the sacrifices that are going to have to be made mm-hmm. to combat climate change. Okay. All right. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811-877-285-9348. And you can join the discussion at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Uh, we're talking today with uh, three panelists. Uh, Ken, Ken Richards and Rob Fishman are here. They're both involved in law and public and, public and environmental affairs um, the, both the law school and SPIA here at IU as professors, as well as DePaul student Andrew Maddox, who attended the talks in Copenhagen. Uh, we're going to be right back after a brief break. You're listening to Noon Edition on member supported WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Telephone Information at smithville.net and from Mother Bear's Pizza at motherbearspizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game musical mini quiz, as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting south-central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, WFIU.org, and the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 745. Welcome back. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. Our topic today is the recent climate talks in Copenhagen and what they mean for people in the U.S. and Indiana. And those are really difficult topics, topics that we're trying to explore with three guests today. Uh, Law and Public and Environmental Affairs professors Kenneth Richards and Rob Fishman as well as DePauw student Andrew Maddox who attended the talks. You can join us by calling 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or you can join the discussion at our website wfiu.org slash noon edition. When these um, discussions are aired um, either in in writing or or on television, China always seems to come to the front of the discussion. And um, as an emerging nation, I can see um, how they might have a pretty – a lot to say about this topic. So I'd like to know um, uh, if you could speak to that a little bit, Rob. Um, I think China and and the role that China played in Copenhagen uh, both added to the drama – 
of, of the negotiations last month and also is a kind of prelude to what we can expect in future negotiations with respect to climate change and also respect to other treaties, particularly economic treaties and, and world trade. Uh, for a long time, it has been an overgeneralization but a useful one to divide countries into two groups – the developed countries and with respect to climate change, those are the countries that um, uh, have been and, and are contributing the lion's share of carbon into the atmosphere. Those are the countries that um, most of which committed to some kind of emission target and the countries who will be needing to play the role to develop the next generation of low carbon or no carbon energy sources. And then on the other hand, you had the less developed or developing nations uh, which uh, were and are contributing to greenhouse gas emission primarily through land clearing and deforestation and who needed to um, – uh, needed tech, technological assistance to essentially leapfrog over the industrial revolution, right? To develop in a way that would not be as carbon intensive as the way in which, say, the United States developed. Um, now we have China, which uh, really uh, has one foot planted in each of those camps and has been quite savvy in, uh, in, in playing whichever role is to its advantage. Uh, on the one hand, uh, China is a developing country from the point of view of per capita income, from the point of view um, of uh, uh, some measures of greenhouse gas emissions. But on the other hand, uh, China is an economic powerhouse. It's, it's the largest contributor of carbon emissions to the globe now. It's something like a quarter of, of all emission. And um, that complicates what had been the accepted script for these sorts of international negotiations. Also, we had China uh, stepping up as the chief um, – critic of the United Nations as the international meddler. You remember from last month, it was China that complained about how an international verification regime for determining how much carbon each country was contributing would be a violation of the nation's sovereignty. Well, that ought to sound familiar to anybody who has followed U.S. domestic politics over the past couple of decades. Um, so, uh, you know, Part of the achievement of Copenhagen was getting the United States and China and, and other nations to agree to a, a basic blueprint for negotiations ahead. But China also signaled its, um, its intention to, um, to, to, to bargain using these traditional roles in, in ways that, that will be uh, a real challenge to a country like the United States. It doesn't sound like we're going to solve this today. But no. we have three callers that want to talk to us, and it's, uh, it's good to have all these callers. I think we're going to have a lot this half hour. John is first. John? Yes. How are you this afternoon? Good, thank you. Go ahead. Gentlemen, I'm, I'm speaking to you, and ma'am, I'm speaking to you from the wonderful city of Greenwood, Indiana. Mm -hmm. uh, my uh, point that I would like to at least bring up is that the gentleman who called and had such pointed uh, disagreement with the fact that there is global climate change has not read the uh, article or information from Canada, for instance, who the Canadian government has now commissioned uh, one, if not started on the second, uh, ice-breaking destroyer uh, in order for them to be able to, dis to defend their northern coast. You must realize that climate change means that Canada will have a northern coast to defend. Yeah, a good point. And that's something that a lot of folks don't understand, that when climate change affects nations like Canada, our friends, and they have to build Navy ships to defend a coast that was never there, mm -hmm. then perhaps they should be thinking more about 50 years down the road. Yeah. Hey, John. And ladies, thank you very much for listening, and I hope that this creates a little comment. Hey, thanks for calling from Greenwood. We appreciate it. Any reaction? Uh, well, it's Rob Fishman. I, I would say that um, w one of the issues that um, 
all nations are concerned with in terms of adapting to climate change. Because remember, even in the best case scenarios for carbon reduction, we're still looking at um, a significant uh, warming of the globe due to the carbon that's historically been emitted. So there are uh, national security issues uh, that uh, certainly the United States is taking seriously that go beyond simply, say, having a new coast to defend. Mm -hmm. uh, they include issues of dealing with environmental refugees who will be driven from coastal areas uh, after uh, storms uh, are uh, become uh, a, a threat to habitation. Uh, Africa particularly uh, w w is dealing with and will be dealing with um, refugees from expansion of, of desert areas. And um, you know, that, that's something that, that the military is taking seriously. Also border disputes point that my uh, colleague Vicky Moretsky always makes is that, you know, no one has particularly cared very much where national boundaries were northward of the northern coasts and the northern hemisphere uh, because the, all that area was underneath sea ice. And in anticipation of sea ice being gone in the summertime, uh, all of a sudden those boundaries become more important uh, not just for navigation but also for access to the minimal mineral wealth that lies beneath the water. So there are lots of um, what you might think of as being uh, less obvious uh, impacts. Uh, climate change isn't just about hotter temperatures. It's about uh, higher sea levels. It's about uh, new national security challenges. It's about public health challenges with increase in disease vectors. Uh, there are a, a huge range of uh, adaptation activities that uh, we'll need to take irrespective of how successful treaties might be for reducing carbon. And one of those, I think, very significant adaptation measures that's overarching in a lot of ways is going to be freshwater issues, and that, that's certainly a national security concern. It's an interesting point you bring up, Rob. And they're, especially along the Colorado River in this country, there are going to be more and more significant freshwater declines and um, shortages for agriculture and industry as well as personal use. And that is going to be a global trend certainly and something that I've, I've heard experts in articles from NPR to Circle of Blue to all kinds of organizations saying water could very well be the oil of the 21st century. It seems to be the buzz line these days. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's an interesting point. Yeah. And one of, the, uh, one of the things that the comment brings up is that uh, climate change itself is not an unalloyed evil. Uh, using Canada as an example, there are certain benefits that Canada is going to experience out of this, uh, not least of which is changes in the kinds of crops and the uh, yield on crops. And that in the, the fact that not every country uh, is going to feel the, the same kind of an impact brings us back to this issue of how do you negotiate a treaty uh, among 197 countries, each with a unique uh, impact, some of which may actually feel some benefits out of this. All right. Let's go back to the phones. We have uh, Robert next. Robert? Uh, yeah, I've been listening to all this. I'll try and keep it brief. Uh, one, the climate is changing, has changed, and will change in the future, and there's not anything man can do about it. For example, uh, central Indiana was under a few hundred feet of ice some 15, 18, 20,000 years ago. It was a normal ice age. Uh, and there was a warming spell, I think, five or 600 years in Greenland and all. The uh, Vikings were raising gardens in places that under ice. Uh, man, it's a lot of hubris for man to think he's going to change climate. Uh, I, and I got it with that. All you can talk about is carbon, carbon, carbon. Well, carbon dioxide is a normal part of the atmosphere. Uh, no consideration of sunspot activity and other uh, astronomical uh, things. I haven't heard any of that from you. It's all carbon, carbon, carbon. Uh, you kind of jump from a, uh, a premise to a conclusion based on incomplete and or faulty data. And I think uh, this whole deal about climate change, it's become a sort of a religion uh, rather than a science-based uh, thing. I'll shut up. All right, Robert. <laughs> hey, thanks a lot for the call. Okay, reaction to that. Well, uh, Robert, you're absolutely right. Climate changes. Uh, it changes over time. Uh, and at some level, there isn't anything man can do about it. On the other hand, what we're seeing is uh, human intervention on an unprecedented scale uh, and climate change at a rate uh, that may be unprecedented. Uh, Again, going back to uh, my earlier point, this is why we need to be able to develop uh, uh, useful, accurate, 
models with uh, reasonable degrees of certainty in the results. Uh, and uh, to the extent that we're using those, they indicate that in fact we can have some effect on mitigating uh, climate the climate change process through addressing our greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, none of us are particularly expert in this area, uh, but we that's why we have international processes like the IPCC, which brings together top uh, climatologists from around the uh, around the world to try to develop a consensus on what we know, what we don't know, and what additional uh, analysis needs to be done. Now, I have to react a little bit. Robert mentioned that he thought it took a lot of hubris to think that we could we could ha- we could have an impact on climate change. But to turn that around a little bit, isn't it true that a lot of the changes we're seeing now are are because of what uh, civilization has evolved to and the kinds of things that we've invented and the kinds of things that we're doing. Yeah. I don't think there's much doubt about that. I've never been a part of a lab that actually measures the parts per million or the percentage of carbon in the atmosphere. But I've, I've looked at a lot of the charts and read stories about the impact of it and learned about it in class, if nothing else. And they can measure these CO2 bubbles. They can drill into sea ice from tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago and, and measure the amount of carbon in these tiny little bubbles that's been suspended for a long time. And that's an accurate measure of the content of carbon over that entire span. And there's, from what I understand, an unprecedented amount of carbon in the atmosphere. And that's the major contributor. Certainly, Robert mentioned there are other factors at play as well. I'm, I'm not familiar with sunspots. I haven't heard about that per se. But there are, of course, other greenhouse gases and there are issues of other cycles going on at the same time. But it's a, a significant contributor to warming because it does trap more heat. And just think about the amount of cars and buildings that are on the planet now versus 100 years ago in China, especially, that's only going to continue to expand. And, and that's an incredible contributing factor going forward. All right. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811, from outside of the Bloomington calling area. And you can also join the discussion at our website, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, and we're going back to the phones, and Jack is next. Jack? Hi there. <clears throat> um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to dive into that last debate. But, uh, <laughs> the, the thing I wanted to bring up really is in regard to uh, your comments about uh, China and their behavior, and, and a lot of our politicians here in Indiana, they kind of China is the the great excuse, you know, like, well, we can't really do anything because China won't do anything, and therefore we should do nothing. Uh, but but really, China is doing a lot. Uh, you, you know, they're on pace to be the world leader in wind power. Uh, they have the largest uh, deployment in one city of solar hot water heaters. Um, you know, China is going after it. Um, true, they are also buying up... Uh, they're, they're trying to cover all bases, I think. You know, they've got, uh, they're securing their uh, oil and coal resources uh, in various parts of the world. But uh, it seems clear that they are wholeheartedly trying to develop, uh, you know, at least the wind industry and, and solar industry. Um, but for whatever reason, I know there's obvious reasons, but... Uh, here, in, particularly in Indiana and in Bloomington, where we get 96% of our electricity from coal, we, we don't want to accept the fact that it's not a good way to do it. Even if, uh, you know, like the previous caller, you, you can't accept the science of global warming, um, you know, there are many, many horrendous things involved with coal, uh, you know, mercury poisoning and, and other heavy metals which are involved that released when we burn it, when we mine it, not to mention the fact that we have to destroy massive you know, entire mountaintops to get it uh, at it in the first place. Um, so I, I guess my, my frustration is, you know, why are people in places like Indiana and the politicians particularly not doing something to, uh, you know, demand that, we at least have a less destructive form of, of energy than coal. Uh, you know, even if you can't believe in climate science for some reason, then 
it's, it's an obvious uh, health hazard for us to continue burning coal. And, and I'll take comments. All right. That. All right, Jack. Ken? Um, Addressing the issue of, uh, of China, you know, it, 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 it's an interesting observation that out of Kyoto, we had a lot of promises uh, of national reductions in uh, greenhouse gas emissions, a lot of promises with relatively little delivery. Uh, very few countries actually hit their targets. China presents an odd, uh, an, an odd contrast and so to, to, to build on Rob's earlier comment that China is providing us a new model, China is actually not promising to do anything and doing it. They're, 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 they're doing far more than they're willing to promise. So in contrast to so many other countries that don't that, – that make promises and don't keep them, China is not making promises and, and, and taking action. The area with, that, that was a stumbling block for them was when we started to say, OK, but we'd like to actually be able to verify everything that you're doing, measure what you're accomplishing and, and so on. And, and they raised the issue that no, we – we are going to insist on our own sovereignty in this issue and we don't want the intervention of, of others. Uh, they seem to have given some ground on that. But, but the other thing is when we talk about uh, uh, taking action here in the US and they uh, compare, it to, uh, uh, compare it to China, uh, the Chinese actually have uh, a lot more effective leadership in this area simply because they don't have as many institutional obstacles to raising new programs and, and – and, uh, establishing new uh, uh, certainly no new loyal opposition. Yeah, <laughs> it's an efficient mm-hmm. government. Um, Ken, could you address coal a little bit too? Because I know you've done some work with carbon sequestration. Um, the uh, uh, the comment about coal is an interesting one because you know why why aren't uh, why aren't we in Indiana demanding a less destructive form of energy? And the answer is because uh, it doesn't pay us to do, to uh, demand that. It's in our economic self interest to burn uh, burn the coal we have. And in fact, uh, uh, we're trying to make moves as a state in the direction of importing less coal from the West and burning more Indiana coal. One of the ways that uh, that we're trying to uh, reduce the amount of uh, that impact is by capturing the carbon dioxide that's produced uh, from, uh, from the uh, uh, process of producing electricity, uh, concentrating it and pumping it uh, deep below the, uh, below the surface into geological formations. That's a, a process that's still very much in its uh, uh, nascent stages. We're trying to uh, uh, learn more about it and do more mapping of, of where would it be appropriate to do this in Indiana. Uh, but uh, but uh, Jack raised an interesting issue, which is even if we manage to reduce the carbon dioxide uh, emissions associated with coal production, we still have to deal with uh, some of the other environmental impacts and in particular the impacts associated with uh, the, um, uh, the mining itself. And in fact, that problem will be exacerbated if we if we uh, institute carbon capture and storage on a wide scale because uh, the process itself consumes more electricity. So we'll be consuming a third more coal just to produce the same amount of electricity. I don't think we've ever done a show on uh, just coal and its impact in Indiana both economically and environmentally and that whole issue. It would probably be a good show for us to do some, somewhere down the line. Andrew? If I could just jump in back to the China issue. We had students from China in our group that traveled to Copenhagen and we had an interesting experience the second week where one of the American students and a Chinese student got together to try to write a common editorial uniting the Chinese and American student factions around some sort of movement forward and it, it was tough for them to establish consensus for a while. They, you know, They're coming at it from – two different lives essentially. Mm-hmm. In China, there's still a massive impoverished population that's trying to figure out how to get regular electricity and how to pick themselves up. And in the U.S., we sort of have too much and we're in a state of excess in a lot of ways and we're trying to figure out how to reduce it. And they did end up successfully writing an editorial calling for at least some sort of united action and, and youth support going forward. But in, in terms of lifestyles, it was fun from our perspective right. to seeing where they're coming from. Wow. Okay. We've got three callers waiting to talk to us. We only have about nine minutes to go, so we're going to try to be fairly quick. Uh, Dina, go ahead. Thank you. I have a couple of questions. Um, first of all, I understand that one of the major results of Copenhagen was an agreement that the developing countries 
will provide aid, uh, sorry, the developed countries will provide aid to the developing countries to cope with climate change and uh, over the next decade. And I'm wondering if you can give us uh, some details as to uh, what is envisioned, who exactly in the developed countries will be providing this aid, for what purposes, and who exactly will be the recipients of that aid. And secondly, I'd like your sense of what do you think about dealing with climate change in the context of a meeting of 197 heads of state of different countries? Is this a good way to go, or should we be anticipating or preferring advocating a much smaller format and at what level of diplomacy? All right. Thanks for the call. Rob? Uh, well, let me start with the first part of the question, the money. I, I, uh, I've got the uh – the Copenhagen Accord in, in, in front of me here and uh, I forget who it was. Someone today talked about the $100 billion. That's $100 billion committed by 2020. More immediately, the parties committed to $30 billion over the course of the next two years. Well, $30 billion for what? Uh, one of the things I had mentioned previously is uh, uh, money for technology transfer. So if China or the United States is going to be developing uh, better uh, photovoltaic technology to uh, create electricity from sunlight, well, that would be a good thing uh, deployed anywhere in the world where it will substitute for the burning of a fossil fuel or a biofuel that has carbon in it. But the other um, uh, major ticket item for that money is uh, what the accord simply calls forestry. What does that mean? Well, that addresses uh, that, uh, that issue that I, I mentioned earlier, which was the classic issue for uh, the less developed countries, which is to uh, fund uh, projects to prevent deforestation, uh, uh, reverse forest degradation and to reforest in order both to uh, provide uh, better livelihoods for people in those countries but also to avoid the carbon emission associated with those activities. All right. We're going to go to the next call. Uh, we've got Andy next. Andy? Hi. Uh, my question uh, really is, is more of a question comment and – uh, it seems to me that as far as the, uh, uh, you know, finding alternative uh, methods of, of powering and, and uh, trying to get away from uh, fossil fuels, um, it, it just seems to me that the almighty dollar pretty much, pretty much has it at that point. And uh, it's, it's interesting and very curious to me that uh, a couple of years back, uh, we didn't hear anything about uh, hybrid vehicles, hybrid uh, cars, anything like that. And just in the last couple of years, uh, when the oil prices go up, uh, now there becomes an interest, and now there becomes a viable market. And I believe that's going to be the same way with, uh, with the rest of these countries. Uh, you talked about China. I believe that China is going to meet their uh, quota when we can find an alternative type of, of fuel uh, that's cheaper than burning coal uh, or or oil. Uh, I, so it, to me, it it seems uh, sort of a a no brainer that that we need to uh, spend a whole lot more money in the uh, revising of these uh, alternative fuels uh, and alternative energy sources. I'm, you know, I, I hear a lot about. Uh, solar. I hear a lot about uh, some of the others that 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 they're coming up with. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, you know, the old uh, uh, demand kind of thing. Uh, people will demand it when it becomes economically viable to them. I mean, I, I hate to say that, but it is uh, a, a truth for a lot of mainstream Americans here in this country, and especially in Indiana. I just wanted to hear your comments and and see if if you all knew of any. Uh, new and upcoming technologies that, that seem very promising. Okay, Andy, thanks a lot. Um, we have Andy's com to comment on, and Ken's going to do that. And also, I don't think we got to the second part of that previous mm -hmm. question about the 197 nations getting together, so maybe either Andrew or Rob can respond to that. So, Ken, why don't you go first? Well, the, uh, the, the, uh, as an economist, I have to agree with Andy that the, uh, the economic incentives are extremely important in this. Mm -hmm. uh, I work with uh, the, Luger, the Richard G. Luger Center on Renewable Energy. One of our charges is to try to, uh, uh, try to develop uh, new technologies for uh, renewable energy uh, and always behind that is the drive to lower the costs. 
and then at the same time we're doing research on uh, uh, what kinds of at what at what kinds of costs would various uh, energy sources become uh, uh, viable. And those are extremely important questions. Mm -hmm. All right. On the 197 countries getting together, Andrew? I know they had to limit even in when the heads of state showed up on the Thursday and Friday at Copenhagen, they had to limit everybody to something like three minutes of speaking and it was still going to take sort of two and a half days just to get up and say, we support climate science. We think something should be done and then sit down. And it's an important symbolic gesture, but it certainly seemed inefficient from our perspective. And it – I would just I would just say that it, we didn't get a chance to talk about United States domestic legislation pending dealing with carbon emissions, and uh, if if that legislation is going to reduce the amount of of carbon we produce as a country, it will have to mean that one way or another through tax through putting a cap on carbon, that the cost of emitting carbon will go up. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the only way we will accomplish that. And I think that is going to be a very difficult political economic pill for many people to swallow. Mm-hmm. All right. We've got uh, – we're going to try to get one more call in. Uh, Henry is next. Henry? Yes, I'd like to know if missing from this whole uh, argument to me has been – one thing that happened in the last century, and that was the population explosion from 1.6 billion approximately to 5.8 billion. And it seems to me that of all the animal species, humanity is the one that is most aggressive in changing the environment that sustains us. And it seems to me that it would be foolish to think that we are possibly not changing the, uh, the climate. And I wonder how you feel about uh, that portion of the debate that seems to be missing. Okay. Thank you, Henry. Well, there, there's no question that uh, population growth is a, a major issue in this, uh, and uh, uh, one of the one of the uh, ethical questions is: do we do we work on a per capita basis when we're trying to think about uh, the amount of emissions that might be um, uh, allowed to each country, or or do we do it on on some other basis? But but population. Um, consistently enters into uh, enters into these discussions. And the issue of ethics is a really interesting one as populations continue to expand because it's going to be worse in the developing countries and on, on the coastlines in areas like Southeast Asia and mm-hmm. Africa. And is it fair for those people to bear the brunt of population growth and resource scarcity because they're already so incredibly impoverished? And I just feel really distraught personally because of that because it likely won't affect me at least in the next decade or two. Well, we're going to have to do this again sometime because this has been <laughs> really informative and interesting and uh, we obviously we don't have enough time to get to everything we want to talk about today and we are uh, running out of time. So I want to thank uh, Ken and Rob and Andrew all for being here with us today. For Mary Catherine and producer Ariana Prothero, engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering pizzas, pasta dinners, and wings with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery.